Okay, hello and welcome to another edition of the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner. I'm your host as always, Mike Murray. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with one of the finest coaches in American swimming, a fellow ASCA board member, Coach Dave Salo. Dave is the head coach of the ISL's Tokyo Frog Kings, a proud native Californian, and he joins us today to discuss the topic of innovation and creativity in coaching. Coach, I'm just throwing it out here. Uh, it was 28 degrees on the pool deck and snowing this morning. So uh, what's it like in SoCal right now? How, how are you guys doing? Well, Mike, thanks again for having me. I always enjoy talking about swimming with coaches. So um, uh, you told me you've got uh, on a 25.8-yard uh, pool. you got four lanes in the middle of the snow uh, out here in California. It was really chilly this morning when I stepped on the deck at 8 o'clock at about 45 degrees. Uh, by the end of practice, it's up to about 70 degrees. So um, we're, we're loving it out here. It's great, great weather. We've got a great facility that we're using. It's 25 yards. Um, but I, I, I told you earlier, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my coaching staff here with Irvine Nova Aquatics to quit complaining about um, the circumstances because uh, it's a little bit more difficult out in, in, in the cold where you're at. So it's great out here. We're having a great time, and I'm really enjoying it. Well, I'll tell you what, we always appreciated when summer juniors or summer nationals is at Irvine. And that's how I want to start our discussion today, because before we, we get going in earnest, uh, I have my own Coach Salo story that I want to share with the world. And uh, I'll set the scene for you. It's a 2014 summer juniors. You guys are hosting. We're having one of those meets where every time one of our kids jump in, we're having big, big drop after big drop. We were just dialed in. And I'm super excited, and I make everybody stay around for that middle time trial session. Now, like, like any good leader, Coach Salo is, you know, hosting the meet at Nova, and uh, you're doing the play-by-play the -play on the time trial swims. And so you switch from simply reporting the times and who is in the lanes to common, you had a little commentation on how I was going up and down the pool, screaming and yelling in a 200 fly time oh, yeah. trial. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite movies is uh, um, a dog show. I uh, can't, can't remember what it's best called. In best, in, best in show. Best in show. And the, and the commentators are awesome about commentating on the, on the dogs. And I know my assistant, Adam Cross, was helping me. He didn't know where I was going to go with this. He was the straight man. I was the comic. Uh, but I remember making comments like, it seems to me that the kids wearing the yellow caps have an advantage. They seem to win every race. And he, he was a little caught off guard, but I, I enjoy putting some fun into the sport, where, whether it comes from announcing a time trial meet, which nobody pays attention to time trials. I've been there with all the coaches watching time trials and, and bored to death, and, and uh, I try to lighten it up. And the NC2A, when I was coaching USC, unfortunately, the NC2A kind of passed a rule that wouldn't allow me to do that. So now that I'm no longer affiliated with the, the NC2A, I can do that and have a lot more fun. Uh, you probably also saw me at that meet picking up garbage. And I uh, usually did that, did that at the end of every session as well as pick up garbage because I think that's, I think uh, you, you spoke about leadership real, real quickly there, but uh, I think that's part of what our job is, is to lead by being a role model. And, and it's not just the, the X's nose of swimming. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, picking up garbage and, and setting, synchronizing the clocks and being there to tear down the pool when it needs to get put away. So I try to do what I can to, uh, to show my, my uh, willingness to step in 
at the grassroots. That's, that's, that's always been my cornerstone. Well, our enthusiasm appreciates your enthusiasm. I know we have video of it somewhere. I didn't have enough time to, to put it together today, but that, that was certainly fun. And, and you could tell that, that you were invested in it. How do you talk to your staff, Coach, about leadership? And I know you had a staff meeting before we, we jumped on today. But what are some of the things that you talk to your staff about in terms of leadership and what you want to see programmatically? Uh, well, I think one of my staff, uh, I've been general manager of the Nova Aquatics uh, during my time at USC. So I was interacting with the coaches every month or every week. Um, and I, I've, I've tried to play more of the role of historian to some extent, because I've been there so long, um, to give them that historical perspective of the team and its growth and how it became where it became. But also throwing back out to them um, just to be involved in that dialogue. And, and they're They've always, they've always seemed a little bit apprehensive to be engaged in that dialogue. Um, not sure I think they were thinking where I was coming from, but I do want to hear them speak to, uh, to what we're trying to do, what we're trying to improve upon, what we're trying to be better at. In fact, the meeting this morning, I spoke to uh, uh, the group back in, back in March or April when we thought we were going to be shut down for just three weeks and everything would be going away. I told them to really think outside the box and during this time of the pandemic to, to see what we can do better. Just don't, don't complain about the circumstance, see what you can do better. The circumstance are gonna dictate you have to do things a certain way, um, but be prepared when we come out of this pandemic with what did you learn so that we can be more efficient, more effective, have a, I think we have an outstanding business model that we might tweak here and there, but I wanna know what we can do on the performance model. So that was kind of my throw out to them today is that I'll be spending some time over the next several months talking with the coaches individually to come to, how can we have a better performance model? We've got a lot of kids, we've got great facilities. I mean, we've got really good coaches on the deck, but how can we drive performance to a higher level? And I've kind of taken a step backwards a lot from coaching. I'm coaching a small group every morning, eight to 10. I fill in where needed. The coach is sick or something like that. I'll, I'll fill in for them. Um, just to, and, and it gives me a better sense of what's going on across the, the age group spectrum. Um, and that's kind of how I started Nova. I, I was always at the age group meets and, and, and watching what's going on on the deck with all the other groups. And I'm kind of back to that. So I'm kind of taking a chance to observe the program. Then I'll step back in a little bit more effectively once the pandemic is over. Um, but kind of giving my coaches, I, I've always said that being the general manager of a large program like this allows our coaches to coach. Um, they don't have to worry about board meetings or the politics of, of parents versus the coaches. And, and we, we, our model is so different from what it was uh, 30 years ago when I took over. Um, but it's now one in which I want the coaches to coach and find ways to drive performance and not get worried about the, the, the minutia of the dry side. And I think we've done that pretty well. I'm there to, to pitch in when the coach is having a problem with the parent. And I love to come in and rescue the day when I can, when I can uh, tell the parent that maybe this isn't the best program for them. It takes a lot of pressure off the coaches. Um, my best, uh, just a side story. I, I had a problem with a coach one time. He was, was always kind of like a, is always a little late coming into practice. I want the coach to be there about five, 10 minutes beforehand. And this guy would always kind of trail in a little late and he was running his practice right next to mine. And um, 
I always had to be on the guard. If he's not there, I got to shift over and take care of the age group kids because I didn't want them just lumbering around. And, and so I pulled him in one day with our head age group coach at the time. And I, I looked at him. I said, you're a really good coach. And I really like it. But you got to be here like 10 minutes before. And if you can't be here 10 minutes before time, then I'm going to have to fire the head age group coach. The age, head age group coach didn't know I was going to say that. And he was stunned. And, but I was putting the responsibility back on my head age group coach to get the age group coach back in line with what he, what he needed to do. So um, I like to engage them uh, kind of, as I said earlier, I, I think I'm, I'm, I try to show leadership by uh, being a role model that again, picking up garbage, putting stuff away at the end of the meet uh, announcing during time trials and trying to be a role model for what is the, the, uh, what I expect from coaches. Um, and I, and I, and I think they, they appreciate that. And I also give them voice. They don't always take that voice sometimes. Um, but I do want their voice. I want to hear what they have to say about how we can be better. So that's, that's how I look at leadership. The model that it sounds like to me, just knowing you and knowing a little bit of how Irvine Nova Aquatics runs is it's servant leadership. So you're displaying, you know, the certain capabilities that you'd like your coaches to have. It's coming down from the top and you're serving your membership. You're serving your athletes. I think that's a, a great model. Um, playing off of that, the ISL, so exciting. Just a whole new dynamic for our sport. And I know that you're fresh off the Hungry Bubble experience. Uh, we are too in, in our household here somewhat, you know, hearing all about it as, as Michaela's come home. But I, I wanted to take your temperature a little bit on this new avenue for our athletes. And, and what role do you see the ISL playing regarding the long-term evolution of our sport? It's a really good question. Um, first off, I, I was prepared to stay another week or two. Uh, I had a great experience. Four weeks went by really fast. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the Frog Kings didn't get into the finals. Uh, we, had, we had a good run at it. I think we were probably one of the top five teams, if, if not top four. Um, but I had a great experience. I was asked to be kind of the technical director, head coach for uh, the, Tiger, uh, the Tiger Kings. The Frog Kings by Kosuke Kitajima, who swam for me back in, back in the years. And um, it's, it's a model that I embrace wholeheartedly because I, I, it's, it's especially the bubble model. I, I, I'm a race pace trainer. I've been that way for most of my 40 years of coaching. Um, I've always believed that if we can get the kids to race more, race faster, that we can drive performance to a, a new level. Um, the bubble kind of dictated that to happen, that we were in a bubble situation where we got to train, we got to compete on a more uh, regular basis. Um, some of those competitions were no more than three days apart. Um, we got to watch somebody like a Caleb Dressel who was racing 10 races in two-day period, uh, finishing first or second in almost every single race, putting up championship performances. And we, I grew up in the, in the 70s where we believed that you could have peak performance maybe twice a year. And that was about it. And, um, and, and to, to be, and I, and I know from a physiologic standpoint, because my background is physiology, that we could train faster. We could train fast on more days than just once or twice a week. <clears throat> and that's the model of my, my training programs. We, we go fast every single day. 
So this really drove that kind of a kind of a model of, of training and racing. Um, if you want to be part of ISL, you had to be prepared to race every, every, every once a week at least and put up some really good fast swimming. So uh, training, racing more, and 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 as as coaches, no matter when we tell a kid we want you to go full speed on some swimming practice, it's never going to be the same effort as we get in a race. Uh, at the ISL level, there's money online. So if you get jackpotted, you lose the money that you might have won for a race. So there's there's that drive to, to make money and there's a drive for your team to win so you can get to finals where you're going to get a $10,000 bonus if your team wins. So there's a lot of driving performance in the ISL. I think it's going to have a huge impact on our athletes in particular this year, it's the only uninterrupted time for these athletes for a four to six week period of time to train and to race. And we got to train both short course meters and long course meters. And uh, they got some really, really vibrant racing in. And I think they're going to be ahead of the game when we, we get down to trials time in July or in June and then try, uh, they meet in July. The disadvantage that we face in American swimming is we taught the Europeans in the world how to do that. We've been coming out of collegiate swimming where we're kind of used to that, uh, but now we've, we've introduced that to the world. And um, that's, that's gonna make the, the world a little bit more of an even playing field. Um, I, think that the, I think that what's come out of the bubble is that Constant Krigorshin, who's really backed this whole enterprise, is that uh, he's leaning towards having kind of a bubble situation when the ISL comes together this coming fall. Um, it would, it's not a bubble with the pandemic in, involved. It's just that bringing everybody together for a three to four week period of time, racing and training might be a better model for the ISL to embrace versus what they have in the past where they wanted to have like 10 or 12 different events going on through the course of the year. Economically, it's a little bit easier to do it all in one site bring everybody together for a three week period of time and can train and compete. Uh, what I love about it uh, in line with my methodology for coaching, it, it's, it kind of drives, I don't think kids train fast enough, to be honest with you. I don't think my athletes train nearly as fast as they could because their brain is always telling them to shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. So I think this is a great way for us to, to really elevate that level of, of, of of training through competition. Uh, so I'm a big, big believer that ISL is, is transformational. I think, and I've said this to those that will listen to me, that I think that if USA Swimming would, would focus more attention on selecting our Olympic team and preparing for the Olympics and get out of, out of the meat industry and let ISL take care of our top end athletes, um, that might be better serving our athletes. And what that model looks like is that USA Swimming just sponsors the Olympic trials and our national championship once each year. And ISL takes care of the, what we now have as pro swim series and the, the this and the that and this and the others. Um, I think that would be a, a model that would allow us to put all our, all our bank into uh, putting together the best Olympic team and a great uh, national championship every year. Let ISL take care of our, our, our elite level athletes that are looking to uh, uh, raise their economic means, um, get better racing in and let them take care of all that. But 
And I'm not sure who's all listening yet, but after this broadcast, maybe more will listen. As you're talking about that, I'm envisioning our age group swimmers having more and more Tokyo Frog King sweatshirts. You know, they're going to LA current meets in season and, and really feeling like a part of it. And all of a sudden, it's something that opens up to them maybe down the road. You know, you never want to hear your your age group athletes saying, I want to be a pro someday as the number one thing on their goal sheet. But, right. you know, maybe that that's something now that gets them more excited to swim. So I, I really think that that's exciting. It's fun to think about. Um, and you mentioned something in there that I, that I want to touch on. Actually, two things. I was uh, 22 years old. I'm in Palo Alto, California. I'm working with uh, Skip Kenny and Ted Knapp in the summertime. And they were still training, you know, four short course workouts every week. And it was long course season. And here I am a new coach. And I said to Skip, you know, why are you still doing so many short course uh, sessions? And he said, because short course is where the speed is. And all the other countries in the world haven't realized that yet. Yeah, it's true. hundred percent. I agree with Skip. I didn't agree with Skip on a lot of things, but that, that I would agree with. Um, I, I, I tell this story periodically that, that uh, one of my best uh, team performances uh, for Nova Aquatics when I was still uh, just coaching club uh, was uh, a national championship in Minnesota. Uh, I think it was 2003, maybe. We had a great, we just amazing long course meet. We won the meet, uh, men's, women's titles. Uh, Aaron Pearsall broke his first world record there. Um, had the fastest last 50 of anybody ever at that point in time. And I think it was 155 and 200 back. But we hadn't touched long. This was a March meet. And we hadn't touched long course water since that previous August. And uh, I think the biggest mistake that coaches make is that they, they insist that they've got to have long course water to be really effective long course swimmers. And then they, just, they convince psychologically their athletes that they have to have a certain setup and a certain circumstance to be successful. Um, and then if you don't have those circumstances available, like a long course pool, then you've already disadvantaged your athletes. So I think of it in terms of um, it's, uh, we, I, I take one stroke at a time. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're going long course or short course, it's one stroke at a time. If I can, maximize the performance out of that first stroke. Maybe I get that out of the second stroke, out of the third stroke and, and water is water. And, and uh, I heard this this week, I've heard it several times that the pandemic didn't scare me. The, the, the loss of pool time didn't scare me. Um, coaches have, that know me say that I could probably coach a workout out of a bucket. And, um, and when, I, when somebody says that, it's like, I, I think I could. I think I can coach a workout of a bucket. Uh, some of my favorite workouts um, when I had access to a, a large sized uh, jacuzzi at USC. So those were some of my best workouts for jacuzzi workouts. And the kids hated it because they used to love the jacuzzi until I ran them through a workout of the jacuzzi. And it's like, oh shoot, this is, this is not fun. Um, so I think if coaches would, would just take advantage of what, whatever water you have, 25.8 yards or it's, or it's 12 yards or whatever it might be, you're teaching stroke by stroke. And if you, if you, if you sell that and don't convince kids that, oh, we don't have a long course pool, we'll never be fast. 
that's just not the way to go. It's, it's your, your, you, it's, you can, you can, you can create long core space, even though you don't have long core space. So um, Skip and I would definitely agree with that. That's why we've been, had such an advantage at the Olympic games historically. Now that we've introduced the ISL, uh, watch out. It's going to be a little scary. I think we'll still win. It, it was really fun to watch. And as I'm watching some of the competition, and especially towards the end of each session when you have the skins going on, and I'm watching Ryan Murphy race after race after race, not only is this quality swimming at high velocity, but it's being replicated swim after swim after swim. So here in this bubble, this competition becomes a heck of a good training day. Is that some of your, your thought process going into this? Yeah, 100%. I was looking forward to it because it was exactly that. It was a, I, there's, over the years, I've had athletes that I've encouraged to participate in the FINA's kind of fall uh, racing schedule over the years that, that I had Osma Lully do it, and Tiago Pereira, and Jessica Hardy. We were coming off of, of a, an Olympic year, a world championship year that, that I know their motivation wasn't very high when they came back for the fall. So I encouraged them to go do that uh, where they were going to race pretty often. And I knew that they would race uh, into shape and um, racing into shape is, is, is not, a, it's not a bad model. If your model dictates that you've got to train a lot, a lot of volume to get into shape, then you're scared by a model that encourages competition on a readily ready basis. So uh, one of the reasons I was so excited for Katinka Hoshu uh, over the past five years or so when she was racing often is like, it, that's, that's the perfect model. She's racing all the time. She was racing for economic benefit. Um, I know that people question her ability to do that, but this is, she was doing what the ISL is now. It's that same kind of a model. And, and we, I think if you watched Ryan Murphy in particular, who's doing a lot of skins races or Caleb Dressel, those guys are racing a lot at a very high level uh, they couldn't bag it, otherwise they wouldn't be successful. And by the end of it all, the finals, you saw some, the last the semifinal meet and the finals meet showed some really, really valiant performances out of some of these athletes. And, um, and I hope, they, hope, I don't know what they're doing after, since they've left, left there, but I hope they, they step, stepped right into their training without any interruption. I know that before I left for, I, I didn't know, I didn't really understand the, the, the racing concept until I really got there, but I had a couple of kids before I left that wanted to do these repeat 50s on three minutes. I said, fine, whatever. But now that I understand it, it's, it's uh, Vlad Morris' office training with me. And so we, we've had some really good insight talks about that experience, what he wants to do for a Russian Olympic trials coming up. And so we're, we're adjusting our training a little bit uh, to get more out of him because he didn't, there's other things behind that, but, um, but it was, uh, it was a telltale that uh, we can get better at, at, at our racing practice. It was funny, if you talk about the skins, uh, we, we were racing, one of our matches was with, uh, um, we were trying to hold back the iron, I think, in New York, uh, whatever they are, and and we're trying to hold our second place position. And Nicholas Santos had this phenomenal 50 meter butterfly. He's 40 some odd years old and was 20, I don't know what his time was, but just incredibly fast. And the skins were butterfly. And I, I was sitting next to Vlad. I said, God, it's too bad it's the butterfly. Santos is so good. And he, 
nicks me with his elbow. He says, he can't do more than one. Sure <laughs> enough, Nick, he didn't get past the first round. So it was like, he knows his athletes pretty well. But uh, the skins really brings out uh, who's ready to go and, and uh, who can endure that, that sprint. sprint. Uh, but I, 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 I didn't like it from the standpoint that hurt us a couple times, the frogs, um, where we lost like 45 points on one stupid race. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of fun to watch these, these kids step up and, and, and race legitimately fast three times in, in, in nine minutes. So it was pretty cool. One of the things that I've long valued about your philosophical approach, <laughs> I know you've always referred tradi to traditional distance swimmers as long sprinters. And yes. I know that you value velocity in practice and traveling at velocity for certain durations of time. One thing that I think the ISL has shown us, right, is how important it is to race. And we've talked about that in depth. But also, there has to be a mental component that's also being trained exceptionally well here. They're learning to get up, race, uh, competition after competition, event after event. Talk to me about how you work with some of your athletes in terms of building their mental capacity to, to have the confidence to come back and race so quickly after an event? You know, I think that's, uh, I'll take one step back. I think one of the experiences I've, I've had in coaching college because they're a little bit older athlete and, uh, and they, 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 they start to hate things like the 400 IM. And you go into a competition and you've got somebody who's, who's dreading a swimming of 400 IM. And I, I just, I throw my hands up and I, and I, I tell them that you, you, I can't believe you're afraid to go all out on a single 400 IM when we go two hour sessions every day, full speed, every day, full speed. And you can't, you're afraid of a 400 IM. And they have this mental switch when they go into college. I never have to swim that race again. I don't know why they do that, but they, they have that sense that they're, that that's just too hard. Um, the ISL kind of dictates that you don't have a choice. You're, you're, it's, it's like a college dual meet. Um, you're racing often. You have to race fast to beat the competition. Um, and I think uh, what, we, what we started to do more strategically is look at the schedule because we have a Every day you'd have a very defined schedule when the races would go off and you could, you would know how much time was between an athlete's races. So we started to be a little bit more strategic on who could handle 20 minutes between races because sometimes you'd have less than 20 minutes. Um, the kids who, who handled it really well, obviously Caleb Dressel was up often. Michael Andrew was up often. Uh, some of those athletes stepped up and were able to be ready to go in 20 minutes. Uh, those who came in better prepared physio physically uh, handled that a lot more. But it was there was uh, there there got to be some real strategic um, factors in where you're going to put kids in a race. Uh, Vlad didn't come into the meets uh, as the, in the best shape of his life. He knows that uh, he trained about a month for it, and even that month was pretty sporadic. Uh, he did get some skiing in. I think he got some water water time in at the beach, and uh, he traveled all over the place. But but he got one month of legitimate training, I would call it, and he he knew he wasn't ready for bouts every twenty minutes. So we had to put him in places that were going to be a little bit more advantageous under the circumstances. So yes, there's this, I know I talked to Jaunty Skinner, I think it was, and 
um, I think it was Jonathan, he was telling me how somebody on his team was complaining about having to race every 30 minutes or so. And all he did was point at Caleb Dressel was going like every 10, 15 minutes and said, I don't want to hear you talk about complaining anymore. So, um, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's funny because it's in all of us as coaches, be it uh, a traditionalist or, a, or I used to be a road coach, but now I'm just a sprint coach, I guess. But uh, whatever you're doing, we're asking the kids to go hard and fast and pray at practice. That why they can't go once every 20 minutes doesn't make sense. They think because a really intense set is because Rod, Vlad told me this, he wants to do more 850s on four minutes. I said, okay, that's fine. But 250s every 20 minutes is easier. So, okay. So, um, it's funny. So, they, they think that that's a really hard practice that they can handle. Um, but somehow you get into a competition once every every uh, 20 minutes seems really, really difficult. So, But there is a big psychological piece. Um, I'm a big believer that uh, a lot of our, our fatigue factors are not as physiological, but they're more uh, central nervous system. It's the brain telling the body to stop. And I tell the kids all the time, don't let your brain tell you to stop. Keep pushing through. And, uh, but the brain is trying to protect its own interests. So the brain will tell the body that this is uncomfortable. You shouldn't do this. This is, it's, it's selfish. The brain is really selfish. So we, we do sometimes in practice F you brain practices where it's just like F you brain, I'm going to do this. Get out of the way. So, yeah. So I think the ISL is really promoting athletes mentally and physically looking forward to see what happens. It's been really interesting to watch. And you mentioned some athletes earlier <clears throat> that I want to talk about quickly because sometimes in this sport, we get uh, boxed in to certain categories, right? I, I find myself getting boxed in all too often, 400 IM mile. But we have a lot of great athletes in the 50 and the 100. You, you sometimes fall into that 100 box. But when you think about athletes like Thiago and Us. Uh, and Katinka, certainly, they were extremely versatile and were successful at, at a number of different distances. Us just seemed to adapt at every stage of his career to be able to do something new and do it faster. So talk about some of the things that you've used in your approach to coaching athletes that allows them to have the confidence in their versatility and that they can grow into other things and not be labeled as this or that. Uh, well, I, I, I guess it, it, with when, when I was coaching Os, when I, when I first got to USC, Os was kind of a itinerant swimmer. He'd kind of come in for a few days and disappear, then he'd go somewhere else and come back. And early on, I, I, he was about ready to get into practice one day, and I pulled him over, and I said, you can't swim here anymore. And he looked at me and go, what do you mean I can't swim here? I've been here. You just got here. What do you mean I can't swim here? I said, I'll coach you, and I'll coach you to be the best you can be, but, but on my terms, my terms were you show up every day, come to practice and, and you do what I ask you to do. And he looked at me and he said, you're serious. He said, yes, I'm serious. I, I love to coach you. You're a great athlete, but all only on my terms. Um, and I just said, you got to trust me. And so from that day forward, he didn't, part of it, he didn't want to leave LA. So it was like, well, I've got you. You don't want to leave LA. So I've got you. So he did. He just trusted my instincts on how we were going to train him. Um, I'm proud to say that when he, uh, leading up to winning the gold medal in the 1500 meter freestyle in 2008, 
we did not do a single 1500 meter uh, swim in practice. We just didn't, we just didn't touch the 1500, but we did. And I still think he could have been better. I think that he still had a distance mindset that when I said, I want things to be fast, they were never quite as fast as I'd want them to be. But we didn't, we didn't push tons of volume on them. It was two hour practices, uh, more race pace driven. There was always fast pieces to it. Um, whatever the set might be. And my sets for the, the, my sets for the longer sprint guys would be um, not like the hundred guy. The hundred guys are doing something specific to them. The distance people are doing something specific to them, but they're always race-based components to it. Um, and so uh, the other thing I think to our program is that I've always, all for all my athletes, that they get to choose one aspect of our training and that's what stroke they're doing. So they're not limited to any particular, every, every one of my sets are, you can do whatever stroke you want to do. You just got to follow my detail, intensity, the repetition, the drills that are a part of the, the work, uh, the time interval. But you, if you want to do whatever stroke, I don't care. And that goes to back when I was a kid of swimming, I was a breaststroker mostly. And my coach would make me do these, these sets of 50, 50s on a minute breaststroke. It's like, God, this is ridiculous. So I've always allowed that out of my athletes. And I think when athletes have that choice, they will maintain their intensity because they have some choice in the matter. And I think they stay away from getting injured because I think subconsciously they move out of a particular stroke into a different stroke, maybe because something's starting to tell them that yeah, if you do that a little too many more times, you're going to get hurt. Um, Haley Anderson's a good example of that. She learned early on when I coached her at, U at USC that she had that flexibility to come off freestyle and start doing IM type swims. And so she became a really good 400 IM or 200 butterfly as well. Uh, but she's a she's a tough tough miler and a tough tough just uh, 10k swimmer. Um, but, but again, I think having that flexibility allows our athletes to maintain their intensity, um, maintain their mechanics or strokes. Uh, Katinka was, was outstanding and that she always worked hard. And, and um, I found what, one of the things that she would often do is that when I would have a breaststroke group, she would ask to be in that group for a particular uh, part of a workout because that was the weakest link in her 400 IM. And, um, so that she would, she would migrate towards things that would help her be better. A lot of kids will avoid what their, what their weaknesses are. She would embrace that. Um, Louise Hansen, of USC recently, she finished her eligibility, but she was a phenomenal athlete across the board. Breaststroke was her weakness. Her sister is an outstanding international breaststroker. Well, Louise didn't get that gene, but she got the back flying and freestyle. But Louise uh, had... Going into NC2A's last year, she was the top seed in the 200 fly, an event she hates. And early season, it is an ugly event for Louise. But when uh, push comes to shove, she would always tell me, I, I, I'll swim the 200 fly at pack 12s and NC2A's because it helps the team point-wise, but I hate it. And, and we were, you would always kind of dread where she was in her, in, her, in her race, but she was just a tough nut. But we didn't do repeat 200 butterflies to make her a really good butterfly. We, we worked good quality, fast uh, butterfly sets, um, but always had that flexibility to get off the butterflies. So it wasn't just, we didn't want mechanic, mechanical breakdown. So 
I think in answer to that question, I think allowing my athletes to, to visit other strokes during the course of a workout, our job as coaches, I always said, was to manage the decisions that they make. Um, and that's, I think that's what we can do to, to better serve our athletes is to give them some flexibility, uh, give them guidance, obviously, with, with all the things that we do, but at the same time, give them some flexibility to make some choice uh, so that they make uh, choice. I think they'll just work out, they'll work harder, they'll work faster. And that's ultimately what I'm after is, is harder work uh, every day. Part of that hard work is, is no doubt attention to the details. And I know that's incredibly important for you and it should be incredibly important for every coach in our sport. I heard a talk one time where you were describing how in a 200 meter breaststroke, Yulia could have two or three or maybe even four different variations of her breaststroke. So when it comes to working on the application of technique inside of your workouts, what are some of the things that you look for and what's your feedback to the athletes? Because we see so many athletes who have technique that looks different than some of the models that we're taught of as a coach. But as we get older, we, we learn to utilize those unique qualities that these athletes have. Talk to us about, you know, how you identify those things and, and how you work together with the athlete in partnership to make it better. Well, I think uh, kind of the, the defining my workouts is that I believe that I incorporate drill type work. Coach might call it drills. I incorporate drill type work uh, throughout practices um, at high intense levels. I think doing purposeful swimming uh, slow is not the same as going full speed and full speed mechanics are different. And so I'm always talking all the all the intricacies of the detail that interspersed in my workouts. Those details are really really important to me, and I want perfection out of those because I think they have an impact on on performance. Uh, really brief examples. I, I do a drill where we uh, will go we'll do a sit kick drill for 20 yards, um, and then we'll do a reverse turn. And the reverse turn is not arch the back into a turn and come out of it. It's, it's a reverse turn. You, you pull your knees to your chest and you go over your back without arching the back. And, and it's, I, I put that into play in a lot of the sets that we do with sculling and stuff. And I get, I get incensed when the kids don't do it right. When they arch their backs and go all the way around, it's like, that's not what I want. I want you to tighten up in a ball and reverse that body position. And they, they, they think I'm crazy. Why does he get so upset about a reverse turn? Because it's, it's a detail. It's an important detail. It involves abdominal strength and control and, and, and awareness. And, and those are all implied uh, in how you race. So all the detail, uh, whatever it might be, it's, it's really important. So um, I think that, that uh, the, the kids all know that, that Fortunately, I, I worked with Kathy Wickspan a few years back, um, better understanding communication style and communi communication technique and how you receive and, and deploy communication. And my, my instinct is to get mad when things aren't done correctly. And so I, I'm, on, I'm on the deck mad all the time because somebody's not doing something right all the time. And, and she said, Dave, you've got to understand that when you get mad, some kids they, they step back away from that. They're not learning from you. So I've learned to not get mad, 
uh, take your time, take a breath and teach the skill that you want. But all those details are really important. If, you, if the focus is how far you go, then the mechanics are lost because it's just get it done, make the interval, don't worry about the technique and, 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 and technique goes out the window. So technique is always critically important. Um, I think learning technique and then maintaining technique under duress is what's really what I'm after in our, in our training environment. I think I, I warn coaches, be careful of what you um, watch out of the great athletes and try to put that into these kids who are just starting out. Quit teaching age group kids, little nine-year-olds swim butterfly like Michael Phelps. They can't do it. Quit teaching them two kicks per pole because when you do that, they'll interrupt their stroke so they can go two kicks in a pole. Just teach flow. Teach a kid to flow. I, uh, eventually I get back to coaching eight and unders and just really kind of teach kids how to use their bodies naturally a little bit more. But, but we all often two times we go to the example of being the really great athlete and trying to take that down to a novice level. Another example, I was uh, fortunate in my career. I've had a chance to coach a lot of, a lot of athletes into retirement. Um, Kosuke Kitajima, um, Lenny Kraselberg, a lot of coach, a lot of athletes. I get them at the end of their career. Uh, I wish I could get them more at the peak of their career, but that's okay. Um, but I got the chance. I coached Aaron Pierce while I was growing up, and he was an exceptional backstroker. And did a lot of underwater video with Aaron and watched how he uh, became the great athlete that he is or was. And at the same time, I got a chance to coach Lenny Kraselberg. And Lenny Kraselberg's stroke was very different than Aaron Pearsall's. And I think Lenny Kraselberg's uh, stroke, it worked well at the time for him, but I think it really led to serious injuries in his shoulders. Uh, he ended up having two or three uh, labral tears. Uh, Aaron's never had any significant injury. And if you look at Aaron's stroke, it's a very, it's a more of a straighter path. Whereas uh, Lenny Kraselberg's at the time, was more like what I learned, where it was, there's all these motions in the back, dig deep, come out of it, finish out, and into the recovery, whereas Aaron's was more straighter through. Um, uh, uh, so I, I, you've always got to kind of look at the, the lead, but you got to fine tune it to the population that you're coaching. Um, again, the butterfly thing was such a big issue with me. I tell my coaches, quit teaching kids two kicks per stroke. Because an eight-year-old just starting out is going to stop their stroke in front to kick, pull, stop their stroke, kick. Instead of just, I teach butterfly from the hips. So it's all hips, upper body, hips, upper body. And let the legs develop as they get better at that. But don't emphasize two kicks per pull. The biggest problem, Mike, as you know, our, our most experienced coaches, not our best coaches, but our most experienced coaches are coaching the kids who have been swimming for years, the senior kids. And the least experienced coaches are coaching in our program, that's the bronze kids. The bronze kids have the least experienced coach teaching them. Uh, it's not that they're bad coaches, it's that they just don't have the experience. So they teach from the model of the, of the exceptional versus teaching at the, at the population appropriate level. So, um, Again, the details are really important to me. I think you've got to look at every detail that you want 
and apply that in the, in the training model. Uh, don't create, I don't think, I think coaches let mechanics slip when they drive everything by the interval. A lot of my intervals are relatively easy. Uh, I want the intensity to drive and perfection of the detail to drive uh, a workout. So not that the, the tight intervals are have some value, but I think if, if tight intervals is always the model that what you end up with is mechanics that, that are sacrificed to just survive the, the, the intervals. So um, those are some, some of the concepts that I employ when I, when I uh, coach my athletes. I really appreciate you going in depth there because one of the things that we talk to our staff about all the time in Butterfly is flow and not pausing the hands out front. And you can see kids getting stuck there all the time. And you, you mentioned something else with Aaron and Lenny and, and both of those guys. It was so fun to watch their trajectory, uh, you know, and, and backstroke success for a long period of time. But when I watched Lenny, I always thought muscular. And when I watched Aaron, I always thought inertial. And um, when, I, when I hear Aaron talk about some of the things that he would think about in a race, and Brendan Hansen told me this when they were together at Texas, Aaron's whole mantra, the last 15 meters of the race was perfect technique. Not drive to the finish, not I got this, I got to get to the wall. It was perfect technique. So what are some of the things you noticed with him as an age group athlete coming up to the program that, that you knew he was focusing on the right things? Oh, that's a good question. I just talked like almost 30 years ago, I think probably. Um, well, Aaron is interesting. Aaron was, he had, he was, he, he's probably just as big now as he was then. He's, he's a little longer and taller, but he's still maintained that body and that he's got when he was an age grouper, but he, he just had a good handle on the, on the water and he had great attitude. He was such an easy kid to coach because he, he always came in with a great attitude. He was, he was ready to learn. Um, I'll tell you one, one of the side stories is that if anybody follows my workouts, I always had odd number of repetitions. You go nine rounds of this or seven rounds of that or five rounds of this. And I always say that's the round number one is the Pierce Hall round he never got anything right and so I always had to add one extra round so one round for him to get things right and then everything else is pretty good so that's why I have odd rounds of repetitions um, even though he would get things wrong um, he would end up getting them right but he was he just he had just a, a high capacity for performing in practice that that it, that it didn't matter what it was, he would he was dialed into the intensity that I would want it to be. And he had, he had a great handle on the stroke. So there weren't a lot of things that we had to do to make changes to stroke, but strokes were really, really solid, freestyle backstroke. Breaststroke wasn't any good, it's really bad. Um, um, butterfly was okay, but but I I I met I I when I started coaching him when he turned 13 and a little after that first year that I coached him, um, four, out, four, four years out from 2004, I think it was. Was that 2000, 2000, 2000, whatever it was. So four years out from the Olympics at 13, I told him I thought he could make the Olympics in the 200 backstroke. Um, most coaches, I think at 13, would have really pushed uh, the mile at him in a traditional sense. He's a good freestyler. I always thought he could be on the 800 free relay. He never really got, took that shot, but 
Uh, his freestyle was good. He had a good 800 free. Um, I just felt that that I saw something in him, a drive, a, a, an attitude, a willingness to very coachable. Just had, he always, whether it was good practice or bad practice, his attitude was always really good. Um, I didn't have to chase after him. He was always at practice. Um, and so it was kind of easy. And I just felt I could project out that I thought he could make the Olympic team at 17. And I, I said it to him. Um, we didn't make a big deal about it. He didn't make a big deal about it. And, and my, my position was more, I always believe that as coaches, we need to let the kids know we're a chapter ahead, but they should never feel like I'm a chapter behind. And, um, and what that means is that you, you see, I saw four years in the future that I think he could make it. Enough said, don't have to say anymore. We're not going to go to different meets to do, do this thing. If you're going to get, you just let you, I'm, I'm here to let you know, I think you can do that. Whether you believe it or not, I'm always on that page. And I think that's an important criteria to go with coaches. It's not about me driving into that. It's like, I think you can do this. I uh, did the same thing with Amanda Beard a year out before she made, uh, or two years out before she made the Olympic team. Because I sat her down and her parents, because she's only 13, and said, I, I, look, I just, I just think you can make the team. I think you're that good. So that's just not you need to know that. I'm not going to change anything. We're not going to do extra doubles or, or three-hour workouts. We're, we're just going to stay on our trajectory. You just need to know I'm a chapter ahead that all of a sudden you're doing this well and I'm not prepared for that. Um, I came up with the, the analogy of chapter ahead because I, I, for a year I was teaching uh, at USC when I was going to grad school, I was teaching biology, a lab class. I literally was a chapter ahead. So I had to say a chapter ahead of the students, otherwise they're gonna get screwed. These kids are smarter than I was. But, um, but I think coaches need to take that approach is that you, it's not you're, you're pulling them along as much as they know whenever they're ready to embrace that, that well, coach said a couple years ago, I, he thinks I could do that and leave it at that. It's not going to push them there. Uh, I think that's allowed me to have really good relationships with my athletes to, to the extent that they, they, they know it's theirs. It's, they have control over it. Uh, my job is to partner with them, share with them, keep, stay a chapter ahead at all, at all points, but never make it, over, it's it's not the overpressing issue. It's every day. It's we're going to do the same thing as everybody else in the group. I'm not going to run off to some new meet because uh, you've you've uh, we got to make this thing happen. And I think that's helped me along the way. Uh, Katinka Hoju, uh, she's her first year with me in 2008-9. Um, as I got to know her, her her efforts and her willingness to train hard and fast, um, she was always reluctant to share her goals. And I remember a practice, I use a whiteboard on the deck and I, I, I said, what are your goals for, for world championships? And she wouldn't tell me. And so I, I, I turned the board around and I wrote some, some numbers on the board and I turned it around back at her and I said, these are, the, these are the times I think you'll hit for your splits in the 400 IM. And this is the final time I think you're gonna go. And uh, she, just, she just sheepishly looked at me and just, kind of nodded a little bit, acknowledging that, yeah, that's, that's kind of the time I have in my mind. And so again, it was just trying to let her know that you don't have to, 
you don't have to validate what I'm saying. It's like, this is where I think we're, we're going to be. This is what we're going to wrap our training around. And you can have the confidence that I'm a chapter ahead. I think that's what, I think that's what the kids want to know that you've always got to, you're always one or two chapters ahead of them. I think it gives them a lot more confidence when they think of their coach and being in that mind frame, I, I would have a lot more confidence in my coach. It's a good perspective to think about. Coach, when I, when I look at your workouts and I see what some of the things that you're doing, I think to myself that you know, Coach Dave is really thinking about his athletes' physical literacy, their, their library of movement, even the drill that you described earlier in the episode. How important is, is your athlete's uh, proprioception to you? How important is, is it to you that they're learning movements and they're reinforcing movements because you're such a detail-oriented coach? Well, I think that's what allows me to be as innovative as I think I am. I, I still am trying to discover new ways to, to teach the skill and be proprioceptiveness or whatever. I, I, I'm trying to constantly find ways to teach them uh, better body control, um, body awareness, um, uh, efficiency, and, and drag reduction, and you introduce that by what you do in your practice practices. So, constant looking at mechanics. Today, we finished a practice with a, a dive and glide competition, and uh, it, when I was at, uh, in Hungary with the Frog Kings, I, I had a couple athletes I was working with and we did a, a dive and glide to 15 meters competition. And um, the, the athletes uh, Shinri and, and I came, with, came away with the world record for dive and glide. And I posted it up on, on my website and to everybody that knows me and made a big deal about it. And uh, I was, all my kids back at Nova were saying, well, well we want to try it. So today we did the dive and glide to 15 meters. And it, what we're trying to teach in that is how can you get off the block with as much force and power as you can? How can you carry your body through the water and get to 15 meters as fast as you can? And nobody came close to Shinri's world record of 7.1 <laughs> seconds to the head. Um, but I, but, but we're, we, we're trying to look at that as trying to create competition in practice uh, with a real purpose in mind. They, they, their self-discovery is what we're after. Um, so I try to find different ways for self-discovery. Um, I haven't done it with the group I'm coaching now, but I like to, when, when I had my post-grad group at USC, we had all these physio balls. I used to love throwing them in the water and having the athletes learn to balance on the, on the, on the ball. And, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I know that there's abdominal strength that's in there. There's balance work that goes in there. It's, it's, they, have, they have to really engage their whole body when they use the physio balls. They, in their mind, they're, they're just having fun. They're just having a blast. And it always turns into a wrestling match on top of the physio balls. And that's always fun to watch. And, and I sit back and just watch what's developing and observe and going, okay, what can we do to enhance that? And, and I look at it as, okay, how is that impacting them, uh, their bodies and their awareness and, and physical strength and stuff like that and, and learn from that experience. So I take the opportunity to kind of learn. I might have a set idea of what I have in mind that's going to 
teach some skills without them knowing the skills are being taught. Um, but they're just learning how to hold their bodies or be aware of their bodies and then see where you can take that. Um, a good example is one, one time I took them in the, the warm uh, diving tank and I gave them each uh, tennis balls, two tennis balls. And, and, and I told them, I want you to lay on the surface of the water flat and just push the balls straight down and catch them catch them back in your hand. And their awareness was, well, I'm pushing the ball down. I've got to grab the ball back. And what I was observing, how long they would do that versus hold your breath underwater, ready to go. And they would literally hold their breath longer because they're distracted by pushing these balls straight down and then having to catch them. They were unaware of the fact that they're actually holding their breath for a long period of time. Uh, same thing if you have the kids go underwater to the bottom blow bubble rings. If you ask them to go down to the bottom to hold their breath because you're doing a breath holding skill, they will do it in a short order. But if they're blowing bubble rings, they'll do it until they get a bubble ring that's, that's fabulous. So you kind of trick them into doing things that you want them to do. Um, but I, I, tr I tried doing things that I might have one direction it's going to go and I see that it's, it's going a different direction somebody will inadvertently add something to a, a skill that I will then, uh, I, will, I will take advantage of that and apply that into uh, um, some component that looks similar. So I'm always on the, on the lookout for things that I think will engage them, uh, train them physiologically, uh, mechanically, um, keep their interest, because uh, swimming's boring as hell. It's just a boring sport. Um, I wish I'd been a basketball coach and in my next life, I'll be a basketball coach. Um, but I, I try to make it interesting and, and creative and innovative and, and um, uh, but at the same time, it's going to drive their performance. So always trying to find ways to figure that out. Not when I read, I read Sprint Salo as a young coach, I started to really approach my workouts with a much better sense of <laughs> why behind what we're doing. And I remember asking you at an ASCA clinic a very long time ago, I said, what's the first thing that you think about when you're writing a workout? And you said, I don't want to be bored. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's a really important thing, right? I mean, we're, we're much more invested and engaged when we're not bored. Um, do you still incorporate peak swim in, in what you're doing? You have your athletes close their eyes and, and feel the water. Uh, you know, I, Mike, I, I try a little bit of everything. I, one of the things I've been on lately, I did a, I did a, um, a clinic in Sweden back in January, and uh, there was a, um, uh, a, 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 he's not a coach, he's kind of a research scientist. He was, doing, he was doing some research in Scotland, I think, on breath control, the effects of uh, breath control on performance, where they do pre-race pre breath control leading into performance. And they've, they've found that there's, there might be some legitimacy to learning to hold your breath for upwards of two minutes before you go out and race. And their research is suggesting that there might be some advantages there. So I'll do that in practice where I will have them, and I do this out of the water. They, they sit on the deck, they hold their breath for a minute uh, period of time, um, then we release that for about 15 seconds. Then we go off the block full speed and uh, maybe 25 or 50 because I don't want them to pass out. 
Um, but it's, it's I'll, I'll, anywhere I can learn something, be it in swimming or different sports or um, kind of different performance enhancing things, I'll try to employ it in, in swimming. So right now where it's 70, 70 degrees out when I'm in the middle of my practice, it's easy for me to go, okay, get out of the water. I don't think you're going to do that back where you're at, but um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take anything. I, I, I do this drill. I call it the, uh, um, it's uh, the, 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 gosh, what's it called? It's uh, luge kicking, luge kicking. You know what the luge is? So I was watching the Winter Olympics one year and they're, they're, they're doing the luge, which is feet first on your back. Uh, going down the, the, the hill. And um, I, I thought about that. I said, luge kicking. I think luge, I can use the luge as a kicking drill. So we kind of use, we, we have one person, it's two person thing. You can't do that with pandemic, but you've got one person with a pool boy on who's laying flat on their back while their partner kicks them like they were a kickboard. So we call it luge kicking. Um, and over the years when I do luge kicking, it becomes very competitive kids learn how to change direction. If you're going 25 uh, uh, with one loser, 25 with another loser, they figure out how to do it really fast. Um, but the person who's just staying there as the kickboard, they're learning how to hold their body position. Because as soon as their body position is not very efficient, it, it's a lot harder to kick them through the water. So, and then when you purposely do that, you have them do V-sit, lose person, person versus the kicker. Um, uh, so I've, I, I'll take from different sports and apply them to swimming. Um, it, the, one of my favorite shows on TV was uh, Minute to Win It, or Win It, and the Minute to Win It. And uh, I actually found it uh, when I was in Hungary. I saw a German version of it, which was cool. But Minute to Win It, you'd take the ideas on Minute to Win It, and you'd apply them to swimming. So one of these things I saw in Minute to Win It was they take pizza boxes and they would fan uh, eggs on the deck and they would fan eggs to a certain spot on the shelf. And then you had to do that, whatever. So I did that. I took, I brought eggs in and I had them take their kickboards and they had to fan the, the eggs for 25 yards and uh, when they got done to 25 yards and they kicked back. And so we, we took a game, and we applied it to uh, swimming. And I remember specifically, we did this long course where they had to actually fan their water bottles 50 meters and then kick fast 50 meters. And so you get all these kids out and they're fanning their boards, to try to get this, this bottle to move and they're crouched down and then they have to kick back. So we were doing it. And Jessica Hardy was in the workout this day and she, she, she was just in a bad mood or something. She thought it was so stupid. So she thought it was so stupid. We're doing this stupid game thing. And the following a couple of days later, she came in and she, her arms, her forearms were really sore and, and she couldn't understand why they were so sore. I said, because you got all those little muscles fanning your water bottle. You thought it was stupid. And I thought I was getting those muscles in your forearms really to strengthen up. So um, I, I'll, I'll take from anything, I, uh, anything that gives me an idea to, to, that has an application to swimming and ultimately performance is what I'm after. I think if you keep kids engaged, they will train faster and harder. 
Um, I think as a coach, I, I, I love that creativity to, to make it interesting. Like I told you, I don't want to be bored. If I'm bored, workout's awful. Um, but if it's engaging and, and uh, it's uncompromising to what the end goal is, I tell people that the only, only thing that I do in, in my workouts, not on a regular basis, but some, a drill that probably has no application, but, but I could probably figure an application is uh, butt dives. Butt dives where you, you dive backwards, you're supposed to land on your butt. Um, you're supposed to kind of land in a V position. And I, I love getting the, especially older kids who are just, they're just, we're just here to swim. It's like we're doing butt dives. Uh, but butt dives, I think, have some value. You, you got to really ab, you have to have abdominal strength to land, and and uh, you turn that into V sit skull. And it's really cool. So I, I still I think there's more I can learn and, and more I can. Uh, so I, I know I'm old in my coaching career, but I just still think there's more things I can learn. Well, you know, there there's so many practical applications for trying these new things. And like you said, you know, Jessica came in the next day and was so sore. And obviously that worked. You know, a lot of the stuff that you came out with initially in your writing in the early 90s and late 80s, everybody tagged that controversial training methods uh, to coach Salo. But one of the things that I think has evolved as you've continued to to outlay your philosophy programmatically is you've changed the perception of the way we look at this boring old term called aerobic base. And you've created the phrase efficiency base. And uh, this is the last question I'm gonna ask you. We're gonna go into some quick fire questions after this, but talk to me about what building the efficiency base is. I know why it's so critical to my staff and my program. Talk to me about why it's so critical to you. Uh, well, I think efficiency is is the, the limitation in our in our sport. It's it's you can't keep grinding out the yardage and expect a different result. And I grew up in the '70s where everything was about the volume. Do more and more and more. Start adding doubles, and you're trying to go. When I started coaching back in 1978, not really knowing the physiology. I was all about trying to take this little novice program I had and going 9,000 yards per practice. And my first five years of coaching, it was all about the aerobic base and base training. And, and the kids were miserable. I was miserable. None of us were happy. I was angry every single night. I was just angry because having trouble getting them to go 9,000 yards in a practice. And I had a, a I was working with a, a professor uh, at Long Beach State that just kind of opened my eyes about this whole thing. And as I got more involved in the physiology and understanding physiology, I better understood what, what, what aerobic base means and what efficiency means. Efficiency means reduce drag, be efficient with each stroke, better distance per stroke, and, and being more efficient is, is more a critical factor than more yardage. Um, in my best, whenever I get in this conversation about the yardage-based issue, it's, it's like, okay, back in the 70s, we were this fast, and we were going literally 9,000 yards per practice, doubles three times a week or whatever, and now that the, the performance are here, well, we, to get from here to here, didn't, we didn't double to 18,000 yards a day. So where did it come from? Well, it came from going faster. And so it's, 
it's understanding, that's the first piece I had to understand was that um, the speed-based, velocity-based training had that impact on our performance. And, and the logic of, and I also was the logic in terms of, well, they don't do that in running. You're, the 800-meter the guys aren't running a marathon every day. But literally, that's the equivalence. 800-meter runner would have to do a marathon per day if it was linked to the swimming model. Well, that's not happening. Um, so I was learning in my undergraduate, in my master's degree days, more about uh, race-based training. The other thing I had to understand is the whole energy, the energy system from my mindset isn't an anaerobic one, two, and three, and energy or aerobic one, two, three. That's, that's nonsense. Where you derive energy is from a glucose molecule going through a series of bio, uh, biochemical reactions that gives energy so muscle could contract. Well, I thought, as I was taught by all the, the, the whatever, the, the resources we had, we had anaerobic and we had aerobic, and then there was this little fossil creatine thing, thing that we, we didn't really think about, but it was aerobic and anaerobic. And I thought, because I wasn't a physiologist at the time, that these were two distinct things. But in reality, it's, it's all within the same, uh, same delineation. It's, it's the same line of energy production. And you can't have one without the other. When I understood that, that a glucose molecule to generate energy for muscle contraction comes from anaerobic processes into aerobic processes to generate energy for contraction. That was like, oh, so all these things are going on at the same time. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have anaerobic sets and aerobic sets. It's all in the same continuum. That freed my mind dramatically. That aerobic-based training is what I do. But it's not volume driven. It's I'm trying to make the the the, the biochemics chemistry to be more efficient, going from anaerobic to aerobic. And anaerobic. I used to think that, uh, as most people probably think, that, oh, it's without oxygen. It's like it is without oxygen, meaning that you don't need oxygen for generation of energy to happen. You just it doesn't need it in aerobic processes, you need oxygen there present to happen. So I try to maximize the, the effort going from uh, point A to point B of a glucose molecule going from anaerobic biochemistry to aerobic biochemistry and trying to get the physiologic adaptations through that understanding. So that dictates that I don't need to do what's traditionally considered aerobic based training. And, 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 and efficiency is the efficiency of the mechanics, efficiency of understanding drag forces and efficiency of the physiology that, that directs these biochemical uh, uh, pathways that are going on uh, from point A to point B. So once I, once I got away from that whole base training thing, then it just freed me up from doing it for doing a lot of things that I do now. So for the record, I don't need my 13, 14 year old age group distance swimmers to do 8,000 yards of workout to go fast. 
Mike, one of my proudest, probably the, one of my proudest um, experiences has been all the naysayers that, that said, not usually to me, but other parents on the Nova team, that Aaron Pearsall and Amanda Beard, and Michael Kavik and Jason Lezak were going to burn out because of what we did in training. Those are four athletes with the longest careers and successful sustained careers of many athletes that, we, that we've seen during that time. There's more now, I think, because of the opportunities for ISL and stuff like that. But Amanda Beard went to four Olympics and everybody said, oh, she's going to burn out and she's not going to get it, whatever. Aaron Pierce, all the same thing. They all, they all re retired on their terms and had very, very long successful careers. And I, I think it's in large part to um, just kind of the environment that we created at Nova for them to be successful, um, that it was driven by their performances and not, not as much. I think our methodology worked tremendously, um, but it was, again, partnering with them to, to realize their, their exceptional skill set. Um, but they had really long careers and they weren't bored by the sport. I love it. All right. Quick fire questions. The first one, this one's sure. been fun for a lot of people. I don't, knowing you, I'm not sure you're going to love this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is it going to take a sub 21 second performance in the men's 50 freestyle to win it in Tokyo? Oh gosh. Um, no, I don't think so. Will the eight minute mark be broken in the women's 800 free? Yes. I think that's, yeah, I think that's inevitable. I think that's, I can't wait for that one. That'd be great. Does the ISL become more mainstream in swimming in the next four years? Uh, I think, I think it will. I think it's, uh, like I said, if, 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 if USA Swimming will learn to embrace ISL as our vehicle for our elite uh, senior level athletes, I think it, it will have, have substantial footing. Uh, we need the financial support. Uh, we've got great support from Constantine Gagorshin but I think the athletes are embracing it 100%. Coach, I had a great time with you today. I, I really appreciate you working around my schedule and, uh, and our collective schedules. Uh, it's, it's been a great talk. We're going to have this talk available for everybody up on our website this afternoon. And you can always check out every episode of the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner on our YouTube channel. And you can subscribe to that today. Coach, all the best to you. I hope you guys have a great week of training. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other on the pool deck soon. Good. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it again. Take care. Thanks a lot, Coach. Bye -bye. All right, guys. Take care. And we will see you next week on the Coach's Corner.